Well, good morning. It is a beautiful, beautiful day. And happy holiday, Labor Day. It's interesting because I had been kind of planning to do uh, this sermon titled your work matters to God. And I didn't realize it until like last week. I'm going, wait a minute. This is Labor Day weekend. And so it's a little providential uh, that that happened. And I like, I like things when they're providential. Don't you? I think that's exciting. So let me open us up with a, a word of prayer and we'll, uh, then we'll get started. Father, we come this morning with grateful and joyful hearts. We sing praise because you are our God, the one and only. And we sing praise because you sent your son Jesus to come and die for our sin. And we sing praise because you gave us your spirit to help us day by day live out our lives for you. So all these things we give thanks for. Now, now we spend some time in your word and we see what, what you have to say to us this morning. So help us to have hearts that are listening and open and receptive and then grateful and willing to implement some of the things we see in here this morning from you. So we lift it up in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Your work matters to God. It's actually a title from a book that I read, oh, probably some 25 years ago. And I was doing a lot of work for uh, a major corporation. And uh, it really turned my head. It really helped me focus better on just, just how important is work. And I think it's perhaps more important than many of us consider or think about. And so I'm going to uh, hopefully uh, shape, help shape some of your perspective using God's word this morning. I'm going to also use a couple of books that have some references I want to make. The first one is uh, uh, a book titled Grace at Work. Uh, Brian kind of suggested this and Dave has actually put this in the discipleship materials that, that we have published. Uh, this is one of the books called Grace at Work. I would strongly uh, recommend that you consider, consider getting it. And uh, in some of his opening chapters, uh, he, says, he says the following. <clears throat> the oft-repeated story is that Martin Luther once asked a bricklayer, what are you doing? 
And the bricklayer replied, I'm laying bricks. Luther then asked the worker beside him, what are you doing? And, the, and that bricklayer said, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God. I like that. That response helped Luther to grasp the reality that every person serves in a holy calling with a holy purpose. In fact, he said, we ought to have ordination services for bricklayers. Consider, because Christ is Lord of all, the work you do for him is holy before God. I'm hoping that this morning, one of the things that will happen is that God will use his word for you to get it, to understand how important your work is. The other book that I read called Your Work Matters to God. I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy quote at the beginning because I want these things to set the stage before we get into Scripture. And in his book, it's Doug Sherman and William Hendricks. Um, they say, The gap between faith and work is serious. And I could describe many serious implications of it for the church, our society, and even for other cultures around the world. But the person most affected by it is you, if you are a Christian worker. For it falls on you to somehow bridge the ever-widening chasm between the truths of Christianity and the realities of the workplace. You normally have three alternatives to consider. First, you can commute back and forth between two worlds, between two realities, your public life at work and your private life at home and at church. And this may be what many or most Christians do. However, to pull it off requires some deft psychological juggling. It helps if you set up an unspoken, unholy contract with your pastor. That's where he's encouraged to preach to his utmost the great doctrines of the faith. He can even preach all kinds of things about the evils of society and sins of the government and injustices of multinational corporations, just as long as he avoids applying the word to the work life of the business person. That's off limits. Work need not hinder religion, and religion certainly need not matter at work. Even so, it takes a lot of energy to shuffle back and forth between two such disparate worlds without feeling some tension. Consequently, a second alternative is for you to discount the value of your work and yourself as a worker in deference to the higher realm of religion. In other words, you conclude that your work doesn't matter to God, not nearly as much as church and ministry and spiritual things. A serious implication of that is it destroys your dignity as a worker. If 60% or more of your life doesn't count to God, then you don't count to God. 
If your work has no value, then you have no value. At best, you become a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Of course, a third alternative is to discount not the value of work, but the value of religion. And I'm afraid there's long-term consequence of the gap between the two, for the work world is not a neutral setting. It has a definite point of view, and more importantly, in the paycheck, it has a foolproof way of motivating you to cooperate, if not agree, with its point of view. Consequently, any battle between religion and work, work will tend to win hands None of these alternatives seem satisfactory because the gap between religion and work itself, it is unsatisfactory. The presence of such a significant chasm means we have allowed a major category of life, work, to slip out from under Christ's lordship. Sobering. Sobering words. A secular view of work is some things like the following. There's a, a handout in the back. I think they're out, Barb. Uh, whatever. Uh, and I've got some of the things already listed, and then on the back of it, I've got uh, the, uh, the verses that I'm going to be referencing. But right now, I'm still leading into things. And I want to I wanna state a couple of things that we would call a secular view of work. And that would be the ultimate purpose of work is to fulfill yourself. It's all about you. Success in life means success in work. And you can tell success, how successful someone is by his material wealth, his professional recognition, or his positional status. Or you've got to do whatever it takes to get the job done, or you may just say to yourself, I just go to work to earn a living. That's a very secular, non-biblical view of work. And that secular view has expectations. That view of work expects more of work and yourself than work and self can deliver. The secular view of work tends to make an idol of a career. The secular view of work forces God out of its system. The Bible has some things to say about that, like from Ecclesiastes. The biblical view of what happens with a secular view of work? Comments like, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Or, for what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Statements of vanity and futility. You don't have to be a non-Christian to find yourself with the above views of work. Many Christians have inadvertently found themselves saying and believing one or more of these things. I don't know where you're at with some of that. You may be half of that. You may be all of that. We're going to go after that. 
because that's wrong. It's not correct. It's not biblical. Let's look at how God views work. And the first statement we could make is, God is a worker. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to be referencing a number of passages, so get ready. Get ready to uh, be blazing through some of your scripture and your Bibles. Pull them out. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. God is a worker. Here's the passage. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. In one of the Gospels, Jesus said to the Pharisees, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And he is continually working. And we can see that in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, and rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before him and in him. Him, all things hold together. God is a worker. He's a creative worker. And this is more than just a clue that work itself must be significant. It must have some intrinsic value. By definition, God cannot do something that is not inherently good or else he would violate his own nature. The fact that he calls his work good in Genesis means that work has intrinsic value. Now, the definition of the word work here, there's, there's really, I think, something like three Hebrew words that somehow take in work or labor along the way. One of those, and the one that's used here, is got the sense of something that's good, not toil and laborious and, and potentially demeaning. This is a good kind of work. It's work that could be a business or craftsmanship or involve goods or property, could be a profession, work inside the household, outside the household, teaching, formal, less formal, part-time, ministry of some sort, etc., etc. I want to paint a broad brush for the term work. It involves all of us at some point in our lives in some way. In Old Testament, there was, there was a lot of use of the word, especially with regards to the skills that were required. God endowed men with supernatural skills to the work of the tabernacle. Solomon imported craftsmen for the skill work of the temple. God's a worker. And then God created man as a worker. 
Well, this is what's important to realize, because now we come into the picture. Genesis 1, 26 through 29. God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant seed, yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. We are created in his image. If God's a worker and we're created in his image, we're workers. And we're to rule over the other creatures and subdue the creation. This all points to man as a worker. And when we do work, we're doing something very God-like. We don't think that way. But that's what the Bible is effectively telling us. The fact that we work is very good, too. God created people to be his co-workers. We can see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. The Lord planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. There's work. God planted, man cultivated, you could say is perhaps the very first partnership. Just think of it. An infinite God partnering with us, a finite people. There's a parallel to this, similar to evangelism, if you will. It's all up to God. He chooses to use us in the work of building up his church. It doesn't, he doesn't have to use us, he chooses to. We don't save people, but we're used by God to proclaim. He didn't have to do it that way, but he does. And we're supposed to be working with him and for him, not off doing our own thing. We're supposed to be co-working for his purposes. Man's purpose is to provide spiritual service as the carefully selected words indicate, he was placed in the garden to work it, to serve, if you will, and take care of it. The words used here are cultivate and keep. Cultivate is directed towards things, people, it's labor or service, Man's work here and labor is not the result of sin and the fall. This is happening before the fall. Work existed before the fall, and it was good. The word keep means 
to watch guard, to protect, to exercise great care over something. Expresses careful attention. So Adam was placed in the garden to cultivate it and keep it, and that involved work, and that work existed before the fall. That's important to remember. Work was good. But then the fall happens. Sin enters the world. So we're going to look at Genesis 3, 14 through 19, and see what's the ramifications of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. Because sometimes, I don't know, along the, along the way, we hear things that are just not biblical. And I want to make sure we get straight really what happened with the curse. Genesis 3, 14. Now pay attention. The word curse is going to be used in here a couple of times. I want you to pay attention to when it's used and who or what it's applied to. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your, your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Two curses, one to an individual, Satan, one to the ground. Now it's important to realize what's going on there and just what did the curse involve as it relates to work. Pain and toil, two words that are in there, are really the same Hebrew root. The ESV uses pain in both cases. The NIV uses painful toil, and some of the NASB versions use toil. Same Hebrew word, same effect for man and woman. Pain in giving life, toil in providing to keep life going. That's the result of the fall. The nature of work is good. It's not evil. It was very good. Work was given before the fall, not after it. <clears throat> and 
the nature of the curse itself shows that work is not a result of the curse. That's where a lot of people get mistaken. Work is not a result of the curse. But work is harder and it has a toilsome effect to it as a result of the fall. But God's perspective on work remains positive after the fall, not negative. How can I say that? Because scripture says the following. In Genesis 3.23, after the fall, God, the Lord, therefore the Lord God, Genesis 3.23, sent him, Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he was supposed to continue working, but it was going to be by the sweat of his brow. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So work was before the fall, work was after the fall. Work is still good, but it's going to be harder in order to do it. Let's consider some of the things here about work. And I could say, because you're made in God's image. Now that's important. So the very first sets of passages we read, you're made in God's image. He's a worker, you're a worker. Because you're made in his image, you have value, and your work has value. We could say many things about work, but here's five that are the value associated with work today for us as believers. One, through work we serve other people. An example of that, Acts 434 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Second, through work we meet our own needs. And there's an admonition and an exhortation in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 6 through 12. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some of you among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. We're told we're supposed to work. We're supposed to work in order to provide for ourselves and not be a burden on others. And be careful with the passage. Sometimes I think it's a little bit abused. In verse 10, it says, if anyone is not willing to work. It doesn't say, if anyone's not able to work. Not willing to work is the issue here. Third, through work we meet our family's needs. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, wow, think about that. Think about how important that is, that you need to be providing for your own family, your own household. And if you don't, it's like denying the faith. That's, that's powerful. That's strong. It's very important. Fourth, through work we earn money to give to other people. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, especially 8, 4 through 15, chapter 8, 14 and 15. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. That there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. And fourth, or fifth, finally, through work we love God. Now think broadly about the needs that people have and the work that God has given mankind to do. That's part of love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything about you is to be involved about loving God. It makes sense that your work must be involved as well. Those are all valuable issues associated with work. Your work has value. Sin made work harder. Sin rendered life and work without God futile. Sin affects our co-workers and the system, but note, Christ did not change work. He changed the worker. His death didn't change work. His death changed the worker. Christ puts the worker in a right relationship with God. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.30. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Second, Christ puts your work back in a right relationship with God. A right relation with God. Colossians 3.22-24. through 24. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily 
as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That's work. Ephesians 6, 7, and 8. Chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to people, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And third, Christ wants to transform you as a worker. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, the old things passed away, behold, new things have come. This involves, if you will, a change of character, both in and outside of a work environment. Your work matters to God. You have value. Your work has value. And if you really start to grasp how important work is, it will not be a drudgery for you. Hopefully, you'll be more excited about being able to go to work. And if you do, and you begin to really believe these things, you'll not only be more excited about being at work, you will begin to use work as a place to share and live your Christian lifestyle in front of other people. Co-workers, customers, they're going to see and hear Jesus if you're living and working a lifestyle that is according to the Bible. Consider some of the following. When it comes to work in your job, if it's a professional job or sometimes some other kind of ministry, if your job means everything to you, it means too much to you. It's very easy to fall into that, to that camp. You cannot define yourself by what you do, but rather by who you are. Who you are is determined by your relationship to the Lord, not by your relationship to your job or your profession. A nice reference in Grace at Work again. He's got a comment about that that I thought was very pertinent. He says, when we're in the workplace, we bear the name of our Savior, and that has certain implications for every Christian. We recognize we're representing his character and his care in our relationships. We represent Jesus in all we do. His justice is to be seen in our fairness. We don't show favoritism. We don't ride the people we don't like because we're representing Jesus' love for all. We give others the benefit of the doubt. Try to treat them as we would like to be treated because, that's, because we know that's how Jesus treats us. So, you're determined 
by your relationship to the Lord, not your relationship to your job. And it's going to show. Another comment could be made like, our vocation is that of being a believer, a servant to the Most High God, a child of the King. Our avocation is the work we do to earn money so we can sustain our lives. The primary focus at work and not at work is that you are a child of the King. And then finally, you can't build your significance upon your work or your job. They're unsure and unstable. The house of significance must be built on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, not the shifting sands of society or other things. Now, part of, part of this whole thrust uh, that I think is important about work are some terms that I think are sometimes misnomers or not used well, I guess I could say. And that's the distinction that sometimes is placed on sacred versus secular and clergy versus laity. And those words or concepts, if you will, don't exist in the New Testament. Too often, we've either been mistaught or led to believe there is a distinction. I, I would personally object, and I would use two passages to support my objection. First one is Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Now, whether this is in the church setting or even some other settings, I think the passage applies and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, that's all of us. That's everybody who's a believer. For what? The work of ministry. And the purpose is the building up of the body of Christ. That's more than just a Sunday thing, Okay. And it's everybody. Now, the clergy-laity distinction, the problem is there's a tendency to say, well, the clergy is the one who's supposed to be doing all the ministry. That's not true. The work of the ministry is to be done by all of us. When we say God's work, I don't mean only a formal church work. It goes beyond that sometimes. But we have a tendency to limit it that way. The second passage is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the, the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. This describes you and me as Christ followers. Peter calls us a royal priesthood. A priest, when we were doing the ecclesiology series, Brian had a sermon on this 
priest is someone who's authorized to stand between God and people. He performs sacred duties, the holy work, and in many ways stands for God. But Peter says we're all priests now in this post-Christ era. Where do we do this? We do it out in society. 1 Peter 2.12, among the Gentiles. 2.13, in human institutions. 2.18, in employee-employer relationships. 3.1, in marriages, etc., etc. The point is, we need people to do the work of God wherever the work needs to be doing. Undoubtedly, some of it is as church, but much of it is at your place of work and in other ministries and areas of work in the home. Formal job or other forms or modes or places where work is performed are all, in my mind, under the heading work. And then finally, there's a quote from a gentleman. I'm not familiar with him, but I sure do like what he said. He said, while the first Reformation gave the word of God back to the people of God, we need a second Reformation to give the work of God back to the people of God. And consider the following exhortation that Paul gave to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Your work brings glory to God, and therefore your work matters to God. Remember that in the weeks ahead as you live your lives for the glory of God. Remember that it's nice to have a national holiday that reflects the importance of work. But you as a believer, as a Christian, you have the opportunity to articulate the real value of work. We're made in the image of God. And therefore, we're co-workers with him. And our work has value because we have value. And God values work. That's a good message to be giving out to people in the workplace, isn't it? It's a good opportunity to open things up for the gospel.